0: Hi and welcome to this podcast from 1914-1918war.com. to In this episode we'll be continuing our reading from Bruce Ben's father's Bullets and Billets. We're now up to chapter 14. As always, if you could like, share, comment on this podcast that would be gratefully received. Now let's get on with chapter 14. Everything in the chapter 14 the amphibians fed up but determined the gun parapet so you see life in our cottage was quite interesting and adventurous in its way at night our existence was just the same as before all the normal work of trench life making improvements to our trenches led to endless work with sandbags planks dugouts etc my particular job was mostly improving machine gun positions or selecting new sites and carrying out removals bruce ben's father machine guns removed at shortest notice attacks quoted for and so the long dreary nights went on The men garrisoning the little cracked up village lived mostly in cellars. Often on my rounds during a rainy, windy, mournful night I would look into a cellar and see a congested mass of men playing cards by the light of a candle stuck on a tin lid. A favourite form of illumination I came across was a lamp made out of an empty tobacco tin, rifle oil for the illuminant and a bit of shirt for a wick. People who read all these yarns of mine and who have known the war in later days will say, ''Ah, how very different it was then to now.'' In my last experiences in the war, I have watched the enormous changes creeping in. They began about July 1915. My experiences since that date were very interesting, but I found that much of the romance had left the trenches. The old days from the beginning to July 1915 were all so delightfully precarious and primitive, amateurish trenches and rough and ready life, which to my mind gave this war what it sadly needs, a touch of romance. Way back there, in about January 1915, our soldiers had a perfectly unique test of human endurance against appalling climatic conditions. They lived in a vast bog without being able to utilise modern contrivances for making them tight against adverse conditions, anything like an equal contest. And yet I wouldn't have missed that time for anything, and I'm sure they wouldn't either. Those who have not actually had to experience it, or have not had the opportunity to see what our men stuck out in those days, will never fully grasp the reality. One night a company commander came to me in the village and told me he had got a bit of trench under his control, which was altogether impossible to hold, and he wanted me to come along with him to look at it, and see if I could do anything in the way of holding the position by machine guns. His idea was that possibly a gun might be fixed in such a place behind, so as to cover the frontage occupied by this trench. I came along with him to have a look and see what could be done. He and I went up the rain-soaked village street, and out onto the field beyond. It was as dark as pitch, and about 11pm. Occasional shots cracked out of the darkness ahead from the German trenches, and I remember one in particular that woke us up a bit. A kind of derelict road roller stood at one side of the field, and as we passed this, walking pretty close together, a bullet whizzed between us. I don't know which head it was nearest to, but it was quite near enough for both of us. We went on across the field for about 200 yards, out towards a pile of ruins which had once been a barn, and which stood between our lines and the German's. Near this lay the trench which he had been telling me about. It was quite the worst I have ever seen. A number of men were in it, standing and leaning, silently enduring the following conditions. It was quite dark. The enemy was about 200 yards away, or rather less. It was raining, and the trench contained over three feet of water. The men therefore were standing up to the waist in water. The front parapet was nothing but a rough earth mound which, owing to the water about, was practically non-existent. Their rifles lay on the saturated mound in front. They were all wet through and through, with a great deal of their equipment below the water at the bottom of the trench. There they were, taking it all as a necessary part of the great game, not a grumble nor a comment. The company commander and I at once set about scheming out an alternative plan. Some little distance back we found a cellar which had once been below a house. Now there was no house, so by standing in the cellar one got a view along the ground and level with it. This was the very place for a machine gun, so we decided on fixing one there and making a sort of roof over a portion of the cellar for the gunners to live in. After about a couple of hours' work we completed this arrangement, and then remove the men who it was arranged should leave the trenches that night and go back to our billets for a rest till the next time up. We weren't quite content with the total safety of our one gun in that cellar, so we started off on a further idea. Our trenches bulged out in a bit of a salient to the right of the rotten trench, and we decided to mount another gun at a certain projection in our lines, so as to enfilade the land across which the other gun would fire. On inspecting the projected site, we found it was necessary to make a rather abnormally high parapet to stand the gun on. No sandbags to spare, of course, so the question was, what shall we make the parapet of? We plodded off back to the village and groped around the ruins for something solid and high enough to carry the gun. After about an hour's climbing about amongst the debris, in the dark, and hauling ourselves up into remnants of attics, etc., we came upon a sewing machine, It was one of that sort that stuck on a wooden table with a treadle arrangement underneath. We saw an idea at a glance. Pull off the sewing machine and use the table. It was nearly high enough and with just three or four sandbags we felt certain it would do. We performed the necessary surgical operation on the machine and taking it in turns padded off down to the front line trench. We had a bit of a job with that table The parapet was a jumbled assortment of sandbags, clay and old bricks from the neighbouring barn but we finally got a good sound parapet made and in about another hour's time had fixed the machine gun with plenty of ammunition in a very unattractive position from the Bosch point of view. We all now felt better and I am certain that the men who held that trench felt better too but I am equally certain that they would have stayed there ad lib even if we hadn't thought of and carried out an alternative arrangement. A few more nights of rain, danger and discomfort, then the time would come for us to be relieved, and those same men would be back at the billets, laughing, talking and smoking, buoyant as ever. And on that note, in which I can't help but think that Ben's father was a bit optimistic about the uh, buoyant spirits of his men standing up to their waists in muddy water, uh, we leave it. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, click like, share, review. You know how to do it. Thanks a lot, and I'll look forward to having you with us on the next episode uh, from 1914 to 1918, war.com. Bye.